thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from pioneers in the field of eating disorders who are part of building the modern day foundation of our field. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. We hope our conversations will provide a continuity from generation to generation of professionals working in the field of eating disorders and bring insights uh, and guidance that will inspire new and next generations of researchers and leaders working to advance science and discovery. So today I have the good fortune of talking with Dr. Ruth Weissman, who is Professor Emeritus at Wesleyan University and uh, Editor-in-Chief of the premier eating disorders journal, the International Journal of Eating Disorders. Ruth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. We're going to start, Ruth, sort of at the beginning, uh, as we want to get a sense of how it is that you wound up pursuing a career as a psychologist, and then how did you get to eating disorders? So maybe we start with when did you know you wanted to be a psychologist? I backed my way into psychology. I was born into a family where uh, I was the first to go to college. Um, uh, I was desperate to leave home. And I grew up in a town in Germany, Stuttgart, that has actually a fairly large university. Uh, but among the about the only topic that you couldn't study there in terms of major fields was psychology. So I decided to study psychology because that was a good <laughs> excuse to not be able to live at home and go to university uh, in Stuttgart. So I chose psychology, not knowing hardly anything about it, but actually very quickly uh, found the courses fascinating and you know never looked back. I really uh, enjoyed learning about psychology and being ultimately becoming a psychologist. And I got into uh, eating disorders again, not in a very driven, purposeful way. Well, there's, I think there is a, a sort of an unconscious uh, thread, and that is, uh, unfortunately, I have a, a sister who has uh, lived with anorexia nervosa for much of my life. Uh, she developed her illness uh, when I was probably nine or 10 years old. And so I think part of me always wanted to understand uh, her experience. Um, so that was sort of one, I'm sure that was one force, uh, but in a more planned part, uh, there were opportunities to study with certain uh, professors. And I actually initially started out in, in uh, obesity research and eventually ended up in Munich where Manfred Fichter was running one of the first inpatient units for eating disorders. And I didn't work directly with him, but I, because I studied there for the uh, time of writing my thesis, I got to visit uh, when Mickey Stunkert came and we went on a tour and I encountered my very first patient with what we today would describe as bulimia nervosa, a term that was not yet recognized. Uh, and Mickey Stunkert interviewed this patient and her story was truly vividing. And I was hooked. I decided this is what I want to study. Mm -hmm. And as Mickey Stunkert was visiting and the inter as the interview unfolded, 
what were the what were the things then that were sort of brand new that other people that that now today we take for granted everyone of course everyone knows what bulimia nervosa is but at the time uh, as you say it wasn't even recognized as a distinct syndrome so what was the conversation like in this discovery yeah so i would say it was in 77 Mm-hmm. And there was really no formal treatment yet uh, developed. I mean, this person was in inpatient treatment because she's very underweight. Um, there was a lot of research into hormonal dysfunction, mm-hmm. um, uh, but the the co- behavioral or cognitive behavioral treatment was really uh, just beginning to unfold. Uh, so one line of research, in fact, I my thesis was on stomach motility in anorexia nervosa, mm-hmm. with the idea being that there was a disturbance in hunger, which, of course, now we know that's not the case, that people with anorexia nervosa, in fact, are hungry. Uh, but that was one of the you know strands that were being uh, pursued. And then the whole binge eating piece was really puzzling people. I know Mickey was you know, for a long while, he didn't know what to make of that. Mm -hmm. But what was so fascinating about this particular case was she described, he asked her to describe um, one of her binges. And for background, in German culture, uh, when uh, children who are Protestant, uh, they have a religious ritual similar to the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, so it's called, we call it a confirmation. And and in those days, it was customary that the mother of the family would bake pies or cakes for the festivities in very large quantities, because it was also custom that you were invited to their house, you had coffee and these cakes or pastries. And then when you left, you were sent home with like a half a pie or whatever. So the amounts Mm -hmm. were truly immense. And so she must, the mom must, or, you know, the family must have prepared 10, 15 pies, and they were all displayed. Mm -hmm. And this young woman proceeded to binge her way through those pies, you know, binging and vomiting. And it was both Mm -hmm. extraordinary in terms of the amounts. In fact, in in my career in working with patients, I have not really had too many patients that in one sort of episode would go through this amount, but sort of the psychodynamics were mm-hmm. also really compelling that, you know, to consume what was intended for this family celebration, who then was left without that very important offering. So uh, that was, you know, and it, I think that's one theme as I reflect on the field, uh, we don't hear so much about the meaning of the behavior uh, nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I only recall one other case that uh, my colleague Lisa Silverstein, when we worked with Judy Rodin at Yale, she encountered a patient who ate her sister's wedding cake. Right. As you say, we as a field have moved away from interpreting certain behaviors right. because of really reflecting the history of the field of psychotherapy. But in fact, there's meaning. Right. There's right. meaning in behavior and uh, it will be important for us as a field. And maybe this is something for us to tag and we can come back to in the evolution of ideas. It's important to continue to go back around. Right. And see what are mm-hmm. we gaining? What are we losing? And yeah. is there a place to bring this back in with our new understanding? 
Right. right? Yeah. 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 So you say you're you're in Munich, right? You're mm-hmm. in in Munich. You're working on this. It was it was it a an eating disorders unit per se? No. And in fact, my project was not again. It was not related to Manfred Fichter's uh, unit. It just ha- it was the Max Planck Institute for Psychiatry. It's one of the world's preeminent research institutions for psychiatry, and I was fortunate enough to basically secure a spot as a student just to do my research there for my what was uh, basically like a master thesis because mm-hmm. in Germany you go straight for a master's mm-hmm. and and so I worked in a psychophysiology lab and they and so one of the app the quote applications of this new technology of measuring a stomach motility with a tiny little magnet the size of an Advil that people would swallow and then you'd place a detector basically to measure uh, stomach motility. So that it, it was sort of coincidence, coincidental. It wasn't like I sat down to study and uh-huh. my mentor had this brought this technology in, and then they sort of applied it to every, everything that moved. Right. Uh, and one of the applications was uh, people with anorexia nervosa. Got it. So yeah. you're hooked, but the field is new. There's not even a term of bulimia nervosa. So what do you do with that interest and curiosity? Where did that take you? So it, it effectively, I set it aside for a while. So I completed my, my work there at that institute. Um, and I had, I had my ambition was to uh, be, uh, have a doctorate, to go up for a doctorate. And it was a man's world then. Uh, there in the lab that I worked in, there was other research labs. So I want to say 50% of the students were women, 100% of the um, supervisors, lecturers, and so forth were all men. And as I was nearing the end of my work there as a, as a research volunteer, um, and I was, so I hoped that they would keep me on, on a stipend to then do my graduate, my PhD work. But I was told that uh, there were no stipends for women. Uh, so I, I basically graduated and took a job as a clinical psychologist, nothing to do with eating disorders, but found out um, about the educational system in the United States. And after working for one year as a you know, fairly young person, I was 25 at the time, working with patients that had very serious life crises and issues. And I was like, and my education was all theoretical. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what am I doing? You know, how can I help these people? I don't have the tools. So Mm -hmm. I learned about the uh, more or less again, through coincidence about the United States system, and ended up at the University of South Carolina as a clinical graduate student. And again, in the beginning there, didn't uh, really research eating disorders very closely, although there was one professor that had some interest. And it really wasn't until I, again, through twists and turns of fate, ended up becoming a research assistant with Judy Rodin. And Uh she specifically brought me onto her team because she was interested in developing a research line in eating disorders and knew that that was one of my areas of interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's how I ended up then being able to start focusing more specifically on eating disorders. Now, when you came to Yale, which was my good fortune because I was a graduate student at the time, so we got to meet 
those years ago. You had already completed your doctoral work, right? So did you finish? Except for my dissertation. I did did my doctoral work on my, basically on my own. I mean, she allowed me to use her her lab for that, but uh, I completed the actual thesis work while I ran her lab at Yale. And that was uh, uh, focused on stress and and eating. But at the same time, we began really initially more theoretical work. And then uh, she allowed me to basically start the Yale Eating Disorders Clinic, where we started uh, seeing patients. And this early work, I mean, of course, I read everything there was to read. In fact, the first uh, review paper that was published in American Psychologist I kid you not, I think we cited every last paper. I mean, (laughs) you know, the literature was that small. Right. Um, and so we developed Judy and Lisa Silverstein and I uh, met every week and we developed sort of our psychosocial model, uh, which, of course, later you joined that effort. And we developed a treatment approach based on these readings. And it was such an interesting period of time because there were other people like Christopher Fairburn and Terry Wilson and who they, you know, people out there all working in parallel, developing treatments. And in my case, I didn't write a single paper on all of that, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's sort of hard to fathom today, but I came from a background. I never thought I had anything to say. You know, I never Mm -hmm. thought what I thought was worthy writing down. Uh, And so our early treatment was by design group therapy, and it was cognitive behavioral. Mm -hmm. But it was very important to me that it would that it had to be done in group context, because I had this whole feminist framing of eating disorders, you know, informed by um, fat as a feminine feminist issue. Uh, by the fact that at th- in those days, we thought it was basically a woman's problem. Mm-hmm. And we thought it had to do with women's particular position in society and influenced by uh, consciousness race, the consciousness raising group model. I thought it was really important to bring women together and have them talk about it, their experience. And in those days, Women really hadn't heard. I mean, they were blown away right. that there were other people. That there were other people in cheating, right? That's it right. Was revolutionary to them. So, right. but anyway, those were that was the early time. <laughs> so I remember well. I actually remember in the training lab uh, observing behind the one-way mirror as a student. Uh, group sessions that you and Lisa led, and mm-hmm. really were at the you know, it was groundbreaking work in terms mm-hmm. of developing a psychosocial model with a cognitive behavioral therapy framework with the group and yeah. was quite formative for me, actually, oh, in my training. Yeah. You quickly referenced this paper that you and Judy Roden and Lisa Silberstein wrote uh, around the framework of eating disorders. Uh, I want to, could you spend a few more minutes on that? Because really it is such a, a foundational piece of scholarship that uh, I'd love to hear some more about your, how your thinking evolved and how you built this paper on 
the normative discontent of eating disorders. Yeah, yeah. And that was actually a first. We ended up having, we ended up writing three papers, one for each of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, the first was for the Nebraska Symposium on Motivation, where Judy was invited to give a lecture, and we entitled it Women and Weight, a Normative Discontent. And so that really focused on the whole issue of the pervasiveness of feeling fat, basically, and or, wa- or wanting to avoid having to feel fat. So this whole focus on the on body image and dieting. Uh, and we were very influenced by Janet Polivy at the time, had written a paper on dietary restraint and the adverse consequences of that. So I would say that initial paper, the Nebraska Symposium paper, really focused on the cultural influences on women's body image. And then we followed it up with the American Psychologist paper, broadened the scope a little bit more, and really looked at risk factors for bulimia, which um, was really seen as the end point of women succumbing to the pressure related to drive for thinness. And, and again, with a strong emphasis on, on culture, but already in that paper, recognizing that there to answer the question of why does it women, why does it affect women, we couldn't just look at culture. There also was a biological piece. And that was much less developed yet in that paper because the research was just so elementary at that time. And then the third paper pulled off the issue of shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very interesting to me as an editor, I now see papers coming back in where people are saying, wow, you know, there's this emotion that nobody has looked at. And in fact, for us, it was, you know, at the beginning of time, that mm-hmm. that profound sense of shame women reported feeling about their body. And we were influenced by Helen um, Lewis, who was uh-huh. a professor at Yale. Right. Uh, and again, to keep the feminist piece in there, she was one of those early professors that didn't quite get the right professorship because she was a woman. But she was mm-hmm. a psychoanalyst and she tried to revolutionize psychoanalysis and make it evidence based. So mm-hmm. we had conversations with her and she wrote about how women feel shame, men feel guilt because of our gender role socialization. And mm-hmm. so those were the three papers and sort of their, their foci. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the American Psychologist paper, which I later updated with Cindy Bulick, in, incorporating some of her genetic uh, research, I think it holds up to this day. I mean, we can fill in more of the picture, but the basic ideas uh, are still you know, really relevant. Well, in fact, Ruth, the one of the the factors that really sits at the foundation of big ideas for eating disorders was conversation that we had, and then a follow-up conversation I had with someone else who uh, was struck by the loss of the narrative, right? And the loss of the field has grown so big and there's a lot going on in many different areas, which is fabulous. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also there are classic frameworks and formulations and um, writings that speak to, for example, the issues of shame, the issues of the multi-determined nature of eating disorders. And so I, I have this hope that, that as we have these conversations, that some of these core ideas will will ring true for next generation and yeah. that and that 
they'll take them and evolve them, right? Because yeah. our, our knowledge base is evolving. So Ruth, you started out looking at risk factors. Take us to your big idea that, and what, how you got to thinking about building on, you know, what you learned from risk factors and, and, and then what you really came to understand as a huge and significant issue that needed to be addressed. Yeah, the link from risk factors may feel a little indirect. Uh, what the risk factor research did show was that culture played a role in, mm-hmm. in leading to developing the disorder. But I also began to realize that culture plays a role in maintaining or worsening the eating disorder. And one of those cultural roles, uh, through stigma, through denying treatment, through not having enough treatments available. And so that's the link. And so my big idea is that if you treat eating disorders properly, not only does the patient get better, but you're actually achieving positive outcomes in terms of cost savings. Because I felt that one of the cultural barriers was that there wasn't the will to provide enough resources, either for having enough therapies, therapists or treatment centers available, uh, or you know, providing insurance reimbursement for those treatments. Mm-hmm. And so I my big idea was we if we can sh- I wanted to show that if you treat people with an eating disorder, A, they will get better, and mm-hmm. B, you will reduce uh, costs in form of subsequent treatments, either because you no longer have to treat the eating disorders itself, and because you will have fewer uh, adverse sequelae, other, we now know, of course, that there are lots of secondary health problems associated, or you're, or you're preventing um, inappropriate treatments. I mean, I treated one patient who had her gallbladder removed, not because there was anything wrong, but she was too embarrassed to admit that her abdominal pain was because she was binge eating. So that's the big idea. So on the on the patient side, uh, I I believe there still are people who either are too ashamed to come forward to that problem or don't realize that, you know, there are solutions that 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 are helpful. On the provider side, uh, I, I I think there still is uh, insufficient training among the, what's the point of entry, certainly in the United States, but I think in a lot of countries around the world, it's your general practitioner, whether that's the pediatrician or sometimes it's the internist, but that the, or primary care provider, family doctor, uh, that uh, there is uh, insufficient attention to eating behavior just very generally. I mean, I just came back from the doctor yesterday and I realized I don't think I've ever been asked ever by a doctor. So what's your eating pattern? Not, not like, do you have an eating disorder, but just right. tell me about your How eating. You right. We just, as a, as a culture, don't think enough about eating as a basic health behavior, other than I think there's so much negative emphasis. Oh, you know, don't gain weight, don't eat this, don't eat that, but as a actually a positive health behavior. So mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's another barrier. And, uh, and again, I try to come in basically through the back door by going to a, a, a healthcare systems and insurance companies and and saying, look, you're spending a lot of money on p- the people you cover, and you might actually benefit as 
as a healthcare uh, insurance provider to mm-hmm. influence how how care is being delivered. But I think as a field, we need to get out of the lab more mm-hmm. and engage more with with the policy makers, whether that's the government or whether it's health insurance plans and and demonstrate to them how costly these problems are on a personal level, how distressing they are, but also how costly they are to us as a a society. And Mm -hmm. I I believe I was the first in the field that did these economic analyses using very large databases. Uh, uh, You know, I basically did big Big data. Uh, my one one of my studies had four million covered lives, and when we uploaded the data tapes in those days, you uploaded tapes, it crashed the mainframe computer. Um, <laughs> they had to expand capacity before we could analyze that data. But what we showed was that e- uh, eating disorders are obviously very costly. We were able to show that that treating anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa on a per patient basis was as expensive as schizophrenia. Um, But we also were able to show that um, the eating disorders were undertreated. So when we looked at how many sessions or days of treatment people got with the diagnosis of bulimia nervosa, for example, it was far, far less than what treatment guidelines would recommend. So utilizing, uh, you know, insurance companies' very own data, we were able to show that there was a problem that I felt uh, needed to be addressed. Yeah. Hugely powerful. And it strikes me further, Ruth, that the data that you were looking at was healthcare data, right? Mm -hmm. And in addition to the straight healthcare cost, there's, Mm -hmm. there are related costs that are frequently in the case of mental illness, even greater than the healthcare cost. When you look at days of uh, inability to work, the the lost economic engagement, the burden on family, the related interpersonal burdens that translate into other costly behaviors in society, it's if anything, it's an underestimate of the cost, right. and it's already Absolutely. a yeah. huge estimate of cost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we know that educational attainment is less in in if young people develop an eating disorder, and on and on. So yeah, yeah. so that the burdens are just amazing, and I think as a field, we just have to. I know there's a lot of efforts to uh, bring that to the fore, um, but uh, we just got to keep at it. <laughs> Yeah. Ruth, you talked about Manfred Victor, who was a leader in the field of eating disorders when you were a student. You talked a bit about Judy Roden. Um, who are the mentors who, who stand out for you? And what are your thoughts about mentorship in this field uh, for those who are just coming up in the field of eating disorders? Well, I certainly credit uh, my research career to Judy, uh, that I learned incredible amounts from her, from watching her. And I wasn't directly a mentee, and she always made a very clear distinction between her students. You know, you were a student, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, those people were the focus of very active mentoring. But I learned a lot, of course, through the opportunity and through my conversations with her and through observing her. And I think the biggest lesson that I learned from Judy was, well, actually two lessons. She was absolutely fearless. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she said, if you haven't failed, you just haven't tried anything hard. Yeah. Um, right. So that was one lesson. Just get over yourself, you know, go fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other was that she was willing to learn and to take feedback. She did a, a TV series at some point and uh, she, uh, you know, I observed her asking feedback from this cameraman who knew nothing about science. I mean, here she was this incredibly smart person. And, uh, you know, I was like, that's really smart. She she really wanted to hear from other people mm-hmm. what they thought. So she was willing to learn. Other than that, I I would say I really didn't have mentors, um, in part because I came from a culture where, you know, (laughs) I was not worth investing in, let's just put it that way. Um, But there are, there were later people who I wouldn't call them mentors, but who were very important partners. You were one. um, And Terry Wilson, of course, was hugely important. Uh, in the work with Kaiser. And I think one thing I want people coming after us, early career scholars to know, sometimes it can feel like when you look at someone like what I did with that study and go, oh, it's all linear. She had an idea. She wrote a grant. She did the study. That project took five years before I even wrote a grant because the challenge was I, I for, for my idea to work, I needed to have a health plan because I needed to have the health service use data, which in the United States, you can't collect unless you are within a system because we don't have national data, right? And so I shopped this idea around. I started with Harvard Health Plan. They were a go. Then they went bankrupt. Then I went to UConn and then I gave up. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance encounter with a colleague who had connections to to Kaiser and, and, you know, he asked me, well, what are you going to do? Uh, Pete Lewinson. Mm-hmm. And I had dinner with Pete and said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I don't know, because the project I really want to do, I can't do. And I don't want to just do something for the sake of doing research. And through his connection with Kaiser, I was able to, uh, to get a foot in the door there, but to succeed I brought Terry and I didn't know Terry all that well, but I called him up and I said, Terry, I have to pitch something to you. I want you to go to Portland, Oregon with me and I have no money to pay you to go. You have to pay your own way. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to pitch them. I told him the project and he was like, sounds great. So off we went and we pitched (laughs) our project and uh, and there was some, uh, we have to, had this great collaborator, Linda Barr, who's fabulous, but one of her uh, higher ups was in the room and he was extremely rude to me, um, you know, disregarded me. I was just a little woman uh, and he kept focusing on Terry, even though Terry made it very clear. I mean, this is Ruth's project, it's her idea. He completely sidelined me, ignored me. And so when we debriefed from the meeting uh, and Terry asked me how it went, I said, well, I, you know, I, I was very concerned because he really 
ignored me, doesn't take me seriously. And he, and he said, oh, oh, no, 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 I liked it. And I was like, you liked it? He says, yes, he was trying to impress me. And that's where we want him to be. Let him, you know, it doesn't matter who among the two he's impressed with, you know, as long as he wants to please us, you mm. know, and, and sure enough, we were able to, to uh, do that project, but without Terry's help, I'm absolutely convinced I could not have I could not have done that. So, and that's just one of uh, many examples of how along the way uh, I found what I call the helpers. And one of the questions now, when I mentor someone, if, sooner or later I always ask the question, "Who are the helpers? Mm-hmm. Go find the helpers because they are out there. You just you know you have to find them." Right. Right. So, right. So the idea that we get this work done with mentors, sometimes um, significant mentors, sometimes if the mentors aren't there, we need to find colleagues who become our partners and our helpers, as you say. We are enormously lucky that you didn't give up and that you (laughs) pursued these, these ideas and this research around the economics, around the burden of eating disorders. We have a ways to go, uh, but really you've, you've set the foundation. As your career evolved, you've become the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Eating Disorders. As you have served as the editor, you have developed a unique, really truly unique position in looking at the scholarship that's coming forward and developing a critical eye and understanding of what people are, how people are researching, what their findings are, Mm -hmm. what they hope their impact will be. For you as editor, what do you see on the horizon? What do you hope for on the horizon in terms of breakthroughs? Well, I I hope for more basic science and and for historical reasons, I think some of that doesn't come to the International Journal, but that's okay. I mean, from a field perspective, I hope, you know, more, um, I mean, anything from stem cell research to, you know, the genetic studies on the, so on the basic science front and on the biology and physiology, neuroscience, there is a lot of opportunity for, you know, advancing the field. So that's sort of one tranche. And then all the way over on the, on the uh, implementation side, harnessing technology, I think is a big area. Uh, we, we know that, you know, there's lots of apps that have been developed and other ways of using technology during the pandemic. We use te- technology to, you know, bridge distances and all of that. Uh, but, the, the tr- problem is that people aren't using those resources. And I think we really need to focus much more on that part of the equation. And it shouldn't be done because we want to save money. It really should be done because we want to enhance the tools that we have in our toolbox and better understand what makes people, what makes somebody pick up an app and stick with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or what makes a provider become part of a tele-network to do a supervision and mentoring on working in our, in our area. Because let's face it, we are a small field. And so we do need to find ways of connecting people 
both at the professional level and then, you know, across patient, professional, family, professional, and so forth. So uh, when I see some of those uh, studies coming through, and I hope we see uh, many more of them. So Ruth, you've really journeyed far on this in this story, right? From your own personal experience of having a sister with an eating disorder, a very severe eating disorder, but not consciously pursuing eating disorders for that reason, although it clearly sensitized you to the seriousness mm-hmm. of the issues, backing into eating disorders in your studies, and then really becoming a leader in the field of understanding the sociocultural determinants and risk factors, the burden, the complexity of eating disorders, and now sitting as editor-in-chief mm-hmm. of the or editor of the International Journal of Eating Disorders. It's uh, really an impressive journey you've been on, Ruth. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank you. Um, one closing question for you. One closing question. As you look ahead to the next generation the next, next generation piece of advice that you'd give to someone entering the field of eating disorders today? Well, I, again, I really think follow your passion and find the helpers mm-hmm. and be, uh, and be open to, uh, you know, to disappointment and learn from it and, and be disciplined. So I, it's not all touchy feely, right? There's a lot of really, really, hard work that goes into it, but, uh, but it's worth it. So pursue, pursue your passion and be really open-minded. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your experiences and your wisdom with us today, Ruth. We greatly appreciate it. And I know it will, um, as you have done for many years, um, this, your thoughts and your reflections today will continue to nourish the, the field. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs>